It's uh, my delight to welcome uh, Rabbi Shmuel Braun, and I would like the rabbi to just introduce himself, um, say where he's from, and a few things like that. So as you correctly pronounced, my name is Rabbi Shmuel Braun, I'm originally from Woodmere, Long Island, and from the age of 16, mm-hmm. uh, very much like yourself from the conversations that we have had, I've been really deeply seeking and searching for deeper meaning of life and the world and reality. And I embraced uh, Hasidic Judaism, the teachings of the Holy Baal Shem Tov and his students. And since the age of 16, I've been teaching and striving to, not just for myself, but for others also, to be able to really tap into the accessibility of God, how accessible God is. And that primarily comes from having a better way of perceiving what God means. And one of the main ways that I've done that throughout the decades, that's been about 26 years now, is through meditation, Mm -hmm. which brings me um, to an understanding and a deeper internalization of what God is and how I could be part of that. And over the years, as I've been, you know, trying to teach that more and more, I've seen the need to be able to find that core of what all the world religions have always seen as being the ultimate oneness, non-dualism of reality. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, for the past couple of years I've been working on founding an organization called Soul, ah. Seekers of Unity and Love. Uh-huh. Seekers of Unity and Love. Yes. I like that <clears throat> acronym, Seekers of Unity and Love. And is that, in other words, bridging some of the superficial gaps between traditions and trying to find some common ground, the unity, and of course, love. Yes, yes. Um, I, I don't like the word interfaith to describe what I'm trying to, to, to do and what I'm hoping to find other partners, because I'd like to call it pre-faith. Ah, it's cool. sort of the source from which all religions sprout, for religions are man's approach to the divine, to the mystery, to transcendence. Mm -hmm. And because of the fact that, by definition, language is so confining Mm -hmm. and cultures and societies are so different, as you said, with Mm -hmm. all these different trappings of, you know, Mm -hmm. what anthropological studies could go on and on discussing. And even within the same community, you could have people that don't agree on language. You know, I always like to quote George Bernard Shaw that said that the greatest danger of communication is the illusion that it's possible. (laughs) So Seekers of Unity and Love is really to try to come to that mystery, that transcendence that's beyond anything that we could speak about in language. And that's why silence is in, you know, in in our tradition. And of course, I know in the Buddhist tradition and in the Christian tradition and in the Islamic tradition and in all traditions, silence is what unites us all the most. Right. And I actually have done a a multi-faith or pre-faith retreat called Together in Silence. And I did it with uh, Father Thomas Keating, Rabbi Ted Falcon, <clears throat> Sufi Master, whose name escapes me at the moment, and myself with 350 people in a large Catholic church in the forest in Olympia, Washington. It was called Together in Silence. And we spent the day together in silence. And when... In silence, it's very hard to 
distinguish like who's who here, <laughs> what your faith is, whatever your this and that is in silence. So uh, it is a very beautiful place to meet in silence. Yes, and I think, I think that if we speak about the essence of what humanity is, before our souls emanate and manifest in particular ways of intellect and emotions and even then language, mm -hmm. we're all essentially deep inside the same human beings. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what it means, what the Bible means, that we're created in God's image. God doesn't have an image. Mm -hmm. God doesn't have an image. In fact, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said that in the same way that the soul is unlike God, it's also unlike itself. <laughs> That's a, a nice use of language, ultimately to erase any imaginable result. It's it's called attempting to f the ineffable. Effable. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the ineffable, that is, to be unable to speak, and yet we do have these dialogues. We we know we. We should know better by now, but we try to F the ineffable. <laughs> or or we could say perhaps, Ajahn Sona, we could say that maybe we're trying, and this is what I'm hoping, is to try to find that dialogue that's appointing, that's appointing to the beyond, to the great ah. mystery and the beyond. So if we could find that dialogue in the teachings of Hasidism, you know, we're told to try to have consciousness and awareness of God. Now, God is beyond language, beyond any name. Mm -hmm. There is no name for God, whether you say God, the Lord, Allah, mm. Nibbana, whatever one might say to be that all-embracing and all-permeating reality, there is no way to talk about it. But what we can do, and especially in today's day and age where the world is so fractured, we could try to come up, and this is what I'm trying and what we're trying to do, is to come up with ways to find language that points to beyond language, right. words that point to what's beyond all words. And that's where meditation, of course, comes in. In silence. Have you come across this uh, Zen saying, uh, I am pointing at the moon and you are looking at my finger? <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> to, to, uh, to most, the mystical traditions, the contemplative traditions are trying to point to something uh, beyond the concrete. And so that's the difficulty. And uh, in Buddhism, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, shutting down the thinking process not to go to sleep or to become uh, unintellectual, but to find that there's parallel ways of being. And you can't experience that until you shut up <laughs> and you shut down. And all of the word formations are realized to be just symbols, not the thing itself. Um, it, that's actually in, in Kabbalah, and it's especially in Hasidism, it's taught that all of reality is the same. All of reality, the world that you see, is God's language. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks the world into existence. Yes. And the same way we're like us, God's speech means that reality is a manifestation of God manifesting as what seems to be solid, finite things. But it's essentially, it's all a pointing. We're supposed to, like the prophet Isaiah says, pick up your eyes and see who created everything. In other words, the world is supposed to be one big arrow. And all the beauty and the, the wonder that we see in the world is supposed to be that arrow that's 
trying to bring us to the deeper parts of ourself, that silence we have within, in which we could all partake, in which God is the ultimate all-being of reality. Hmm. So tell me just a little bit about your your particular tradition um, or why you, you feel comfortable in the contemplative practice mode. Uh, it's, certain, it's not common throughout all rabbinical traditions. Uh, well, that's the $64,000 question, yeah. John well, that's, thank, So I asked the right question. You did. I don't know if you're allowed to get, as a monk, if you're allowed to get $64,000. <laughs> I have to give it away. <laughs> okay, well. Um, so the answer is follows. So obviously Judaism, well, maybe not so obvious to many, Judaism is primarily a religion of praxis. Mm-hmm which means that for Jews, the most important thing in the Jewish tradition has always been doing what's called mitzvahs, doing commandments, keeping the laws, keeping the halacha, the law. Right. And, and that could be, that is very often physical things, putting on tefillin or to light Shabbat candles, to keep Shabbat, keep kosher, Passover's coming up to eat matzah, you know, on the night of Passover. And that's because in our tradition, the purpose of reality ultimately is to bring what you would call nirvana, that ultimate state of existence, that mystery, what we call the infinite light of God, into reality, to, so to speak, bring God down into our world. And that's done <clears throat> with these physical mitzvahs. When you eat matzah on the night of Passover, or you put on tefillin, or you shake a lulav, or whatever the mitzvot are, or you wear tzitzis, etc., those things are bringing God's infinite being to be revealed that all humanity should experience the bana, should experience the infinite presence of God. However, at the same way, there's always been a meditative tradition in Judaism. Hmm. There's always been, first of all, we've always, we had the prophets, and uh, we find throughout the Bible that there were those that were striving to get prophecy. In other words, they had to... They had to wear special clothing, they had to go into seclusion, they had to contemplate, and that's how they allowed themselves to become conduits for prophecy to come down. Now, essentially what was at the time of the temple, you know, we had all the Jewish people would meditate and become, you know, one with the divine through meditation. What happened was that throughout the generations, because of, since the destruction of the second temple and all the persecutions and exiles and all the stuff that you know uh, that we that Jewish history saddest book in that has ever been written is the book of Jewish history that we've had to go through. So we lost you know that meditative tradition. I don't know if I'm allowed to quote Woody Allen. Yes, Woody Allen and Annie Hall. He says one of my favorites. Uh, I quote yeah. him often. Was that? I quote him often. Oh yeah. Yes. So Woody Allen, you know, and Diane Keaton and Annie Hall shows up a, a painting that her grandmother said, and yeah. and uh, my Grammy Smith painted that, and Woody Allen says, well. My grandmother was too busy being beaten up by Cossacks to paint anything. <laughs> she didn't have any time. So we really weren't able to preserve the meditative tradition. But at the same time, throughout the generations, Jews have prayed three times a day. And prayer is supposed to be a meditative. It's not just supposed to be saying words. Saying words is step B. Mm-hmm. Step one is to be in a meditative state. And so especially when the, the Holy Baal Shem Tov, the Renaissance of Hasidism began in the 18th century in Europe, the the Hasidic masters very much stressed the need that all people should meditate and come to deep awareness of God, of the all, of, of, of ultimate reality, of the oneness, of being within God all the time, etc. And, you know, as, as late as, as uh, in 20th century, the Piazetzner Rebbe, who was uh, Rabbi Kolonov's common Shapira, he was known as the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm-hmm. He, was, uh, he would 
was teaching the Warsaw Ghetto and eventually he was murdered in Treblinka. But he has in one of his books what he calls the Hashkata, which means the silencing, mm-hmm. the silencing of the mind. Mm-hmm. And his instructions there are very concise. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it for years and not having any idea what he's talking about. I mean, most of our sources, when in Judaism speaks about the meditative practice, which is our ascending up to God, mm-hmm. which again is supposed to be the motivation to then bring God down, to then do mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to do charity and bring God to the world actively through praxis after we, as well, you could start with that, of course, because objectively you will be bringing God to the world. But the best way to do that is to do that as a result of your ascending through meditation. And the Piazetz and the Rebbe is saying, silence the mind. Mm. And I remember as for years and years, I mean, I, you know, the, most of the Hasidic works will, te- will talk about things, information, ideas, about God, cerebral ideas, images, emanations of God's light, etc. But the actual quieting of the mind, the instructions are not that clear, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, sort of something that I was always struggling with for myself. And also when I was trying to teach how to meditate, it's very right. difficult. And then I'd say it's now about two years ago, a dear friend of mine brought me to a, a meditation retreat in Israel. Uh, Rabbi David Weiss, um, who teaches uh, Vipassana meditation, the Gwenka style, mm-hmm. for Orthodox Jews in Israel. And all of a sudden, I was able to like really reach a silence mm-hmm. where I came to a place where like the body was not a hindrance anymore, you know, to be able to come to a state of deep calm and deep presence of divinity, where the body instead became a vehicle, a way, you know, as, as the book of Job, for my flesh I see God, that the body, the focusing on the body, and meditating on the body, that itself could be a way to silence the mind, etc. And that, that really began my interest in Buddhist tradition and, um, you know, meditative practices, that, that really was my introduction to it. And um, I, I, I don't, I'm not, God forbid, comparing myself to men of such great stature, but I, I take as inspiration, for instance, uh, Maimonides. Mm-hmm. Maimonides' generation, so Aristotelian philosophy, was so prevalent and so prominent throughout Europe and throughout the, the Islamic countries that it was almost impossible to ignore. And it was a threat to monotheistic religion. Mm-hmm. And what Avicenna did for the Muslims, Maimonides did for the Jews, and later Thomas Aquinas did for the Christians, which was to synthesize and show the truth inherent in Aristotle's philosophy. Obviously, not the, Maimonides didn't accept everything, but he showed how Aristotelian philosophy could be a way to approach God. And this has been something that rabbis have done throughout the generations, even though we believe that our Torah is complete and whole. Our Torah, we believe, is as infinite as God is. And everything is in the Torah, but that doesn't mean necessarily that everyone could right away find what they need from the Torah. And throughout the generations, rabbis have very often taken wisdom and teachings from non-Jews and from other traditions, all the way up to the 20th century, the great Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, who at the time where existentialism was the most uh, rampant, which we've spoken about, that philosophy, which, you know, existentialism is one of those philosophies that like, you don't really, it's like the sun, you don't want to look at it too much, but like you can't really avoid it, you know, those existential questions. And Rabbi Soloveitchik synthesized, took great thinkers like Kierkegaard and synthesized that with Judaism. And and I think in today's day and age, my interest in, in Buddhism, besides for soul, for seekers of unity and love, to try to 
see how we could further an organization that will really bring people together in silence. But besides that, for Jews, because I, I play a role also as a rabbi, for, yeah. as, as a rabbi for Jews, there are so many Jews that have been perplexed, if I may use Maimonides' term, perplexed by, they see the beauty of Buddhism, they see the beauty of the Buddhist path and what he taught, mm-hmm. and how the advice that he gave and all the different teachings are so explained how to come to meditation, how to clear the mind, how to come to inner peace, how to come to love and kindness. And and there are so many Jews that have been fallen in love with that Buddhist tradition, but don't see how that could be synthesized with, with God. Right. And and I, I, I feel that as a as a responsibility as a rabbi that, that cares deeply about humanity. And and again, as I said since I'm 16, all I've wanted really in life was to try to be able to allow Jews to get all people to feel God in, in a deep way, I think that the, the Buddhist teachings, you know, to be able to see when this is what I'm working on, to see how it would be possible to to synthesize and take those teachings of the Dhamma and be able to show how some of those teachings could be, in fact, the path to tr- transcendence and the path to the divine. Right. Yeah, Buddhism is very interested in offering a, a buffet, a... Uh, of teachings for anybody to take any part that they wish. You don't have to like everything in the in the buffet, but whatever you do like, please help yourself to it. And it's really it's kosher, right? It's buffet. kosher. Yeah, just take the kosher stuff. Take kosher so, stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and incorporate it. And of course, we're. I think uh, it's been also at the buffet have been uh, Christian contemplatives as well. Father Thomas Keating, Merton, uh, Thomas, Thomas Merton. Merton, and uh, we are—we don't have any kind of take it all or nothing. It's—it's uh, it's all open and free. Uh, in the time of the Buddha, he, it was a number of people that came to him and said, "Look, I'm from this village, and I'm actually the head man of this village, and we have a religion, you know. And uh, but the things you're saying are very—I really find some value in them now." I can't really show respect for you in the same way as your disciples do. But what if I just raise one hand? <laughs> and you know that what I mean is I'm, I'm, I'm respectful to you. Uh, and the Buddha would, would say, yes, whatever you, whatever you want, you know, like, help yourself. There is no attempt to uh, conversions or any of this stuff. It's just free, open, help yourself. These are universal truths. The Buddha didn't invent them. He just came across them. They're something like physics. I mean, help yourself. <laughs> and I think, Ajahn, it's important. I know there are a lot of Orthodox Jews that yeah. get confused because they see the statues of the Buddha. Ah, and yes. they and for a Jew, you know, worshipping an idol is like, yes, it's worse than putting a red flag in front of a bull. You know, yeah. that's, you know, but we have discussed, you know, when you told me you're, you're, um, when I mentioned that to you, and you said you told me about the statue of Bach that you have on your piano, or yes, your yes, sister's piano. yes. Well, this is, and even, even, sorry, I was sort of from a kind of a philosophical atheist type of tradition uh, when I came to Buddhism, and uh, there's this Buddha statue, and people bowing to it, and even uh, the alarm bells ran off for me, like I say. Isn't this idol worship uh, somewhere in somewhere in my Sunday school class in Anglican? Didn't they say good old paganism? Yeah, yeah. So so and uh, there's a lot of 
So the monks who came had to explain that this is really nothing to, there isn't anybody in that statue. It's not a statue of the Buddha. Um, and in, I've given talks lately called, Where is the Buddha now? And you will notice in the main sala uh, that we, I have a painting called, Where is the Buddha now? It's eight feet tall. And it's all it is, the outline, and there's no Buddha in there. Because the Buddha himself was saying, you can't see me. Not only after I die, but even while I'm alive, standing in front of you, you cannot see the Buddha. But if you see Dhamma, if you see truth, then you see the Buddha. Because the Buddha is not something other than just truth. If you see truth, you see the Buddha. So now there are people, and most people, I think, are concrete. They, they, they don't have a lot of imagination, especially about abstract concepts. No, I wasn't so good at math myself. No. <laughs> Neither was I. I think that's what we became contemplative. <laughs> yeah. We're friends in the absence of math. <laughs> so they need concrete things. Uh, they need something to... to, to bring into, help their imagination. So it's just statuary. By the way, did these statues come from Buddhism? No. Where did they come from? The Greeks. Mm. They are Greek statuary. The Greeks, when they encountered Buddhism, they made marble statues of this hero called the Buddha. Mm. And because they respected him as a philosopher. And they, of course, wanted to carve him in marble in right. three dimensions, there were no three-dimensional representations. The early representations, there wasn't any. It was an empty chair or footprints. Hmm. That was all. An empty chair. An empty chair. We have that. Yes. There's, so there's they, a group of Hasidim called Breslov, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who passed away about 200 years ago, and they have his empty chair. Well, till today. That is, the Buddha toured around to the various monasteries that he established during his life. And the monks kept a chair for hmm. him if he showed up. Hmm. And when he died, they kept that chair, the empty chair, wow. the, the Buddha's empty chair. And that was the symbol, the empty chair, because really emptiness is a, a big thing for us. <laughs> it's the, the absence uh, that, that all of reality is a vibrating verb rather than Speech. a bunch of nouns, concrete nouns. So in some ways we do a disservice by carving it in stone it gives you the impression there is something there but it's for it's an expedient for people who can't manage abstract ideas and right. so forth and i think you know it's important to point out that um It's important to point out, I always like to say, that semantics really matter in theology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed before, you don't worship the Buddha, you pay homage to the Buddha. Homage. You don't worship the Buddha yeah. at all. Yeah. And I think that's, for instance, if I could go back to Maimonides, where he says that he accepts Aristotle's philosophy from the celestial spheres and down. Mm -hmm. 
But above that, when it comes to God, then he, you know, he wouldn't agree with Aristotle's idea of the unmoved mover, etc. And I think that's why the Buddhist meditative practices can very much be connected and the Buddhist philosophical, psychological teachings in some ways, what I'm working to, to bring to, to other Orthodox Jews, etc., and, and to myself, is that the Buddhist teachings are a teaching of emptiness, of to come to that transcendence and to come to that place of understanding ultimate depth and reality mm -hmm. and in that ultimate silence where we could be united. Yeah. So in other words, God isn't a guy with a white beard? No. Well, <laughs> only in Gary Larson. You remember the far side? It's actually one of my all-time favorite far sides is... They have a picture of God creating the world. Uh, Gary Larson, yeah. the far side. Yes. So he, he has like this guy with a long white beard with a chef's hat. And he has a pot <laughs> with a globe. And then you see like on the on the shelves, you know, light-skinned people, dark-skinned people, trees, you know, yeah. rivers. And then God is holding a shaker that says in it, idiots. <laughs> and he says, this is to make it more interesting. <laughs> <clears throat> So that's in Gary Larson or yes. Michelangelo, yes. you know. The, then you know, but of course, even Michelangelo. I don't. I don't know Gary Larson's religious beliefs, but I'm sure Michelangelo, when he created, when he painted, in the Sistine Chapel, God, of course, is not a man with a white beard. God is no form, has no image, and already in the Middle Ages, Maimonides and others were very vociferous that the biblical terminology, the terms that the Bible uses, ascribing to God anthropomorphisms in human terms, are just borrowed terminology, and especially with the teachings of the Kabbalah, we approach an understanding of God as the Ein Sof, the infinite, the boundless, mm -hmm. words that I've seen describing Nibbana. Yes. And, and uh, you know, we, we would see even, you know, that state of bliss of Nibbana, you know, as being a ray of the light of God. And, and God is an infinite, all-encompassing and all-permeating light. Mm -hmm. And that's why, again, if we come back to the fact that throughout the generations... You know, for centuries, there have been so many wars, bloodshed, mm -hmm. committed in the name of God. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't in the name of God. That's what people don't understand. It wasn't in God's name. It was in phraseology, mm -hmm. particular ways of explaining God. Mm -hmm. But if we could come to that silence and, and to try to tap into that infinite, all-pervading, encompassing, and transcendent, and per permeating, imminent being an infinite reality which no language can express. You know, you mentioned the sense of the ineffable Rabbi A.J. Heschel. I always love to quote Rabbi A.J. Heschel. He's, he's, the sense of the ineffable in the sight of which all poets, philosophers, and, and saints have always lived. Yeah. That's God. God is being. Mm -hmm. I would say God doesn't exist. Prove to me God exists. God doesn't exist. God is existence. Mm -hmm. Existence all of reality, that emptiness that contains all of reality and becomes all of reality. Or as the Sufi, the Sufi masters say, he veils himself, well, even he is an improper word. There's no pronouns. He's not a he or a she. God veils self with self. The veils, the, the, the garments of reality are also just part of the all-encompassing infinite being. Right. So verbs are, are closer to the reality than, than nouns uh, as well. So... With Buddhism, uh, verbs—it's very hard to communicate with just verbs. I mean, uh, it's handy to have a glass. Unless you're a football player. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or a soldier. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, coming back to Annie Hall, 
the movie Any Home. Okay. Do you know the original title for that movie? I do not. Anhedonia, which is a psychological term for an inability to feel any pleasure. And huh. so Annie Hall is just a symbol of the attempt to restore a, an inner sense of joy in life. Huh. Now, Woody uh, was is has been a searcher and has he's pretty materialistic actually, <laughs> and he's been on an existential journey for his life. But you can see some of the results of that is the inability to experience any joy in life, and uh, so this. Uh, he he's hoping that this vivacious woman will restore that to him. I find that a shallow solution to things. Oh, yeah. uh, so anhedonia, I've had the experience of anhedonia. You, as you become jaded to the world, you wonder, you know, it's a small thing. Is there anything that can lift me out of this? <laughs> and so this practice of meditation, which seems to be a very... Uh, from outside, people wonder, why would you do that? Right. I have people coming to the monastery sometimes and saying, I, my, my co-workers ask me where I'm going, and I say, to a resort. <laughs> so, because if I say to a monastery, they say, what's, what's wrong? You know, uh, what happened to you? Uh, so, actually, the monastery is a place to revive yourself, to bring life back in hmm. and it's through this silence and reduction of things that your senses come back to life as hmm. well so that's the paradox of this silent introspection the quieting of the mind is that you you restore yourself and your appreciation for the world and your appreciation even for the simplest things as a glass of water yes yes rabbi heschel says for a a person that lives with the sense of the ineffable, all of reality is bereft of triteness. There's uh, nothing trite. Right. And uh, actually, you know, when you mentioned Woody Allen, so I'm more of a Mel Brooks fan. <laughs> if you remember good old Mel yes, Brooks. Of I, I like Mel Brooks I know more. All the cultural reference. <laughs> yeah. So I, I loved Mel Brooks. Actually, my bar mitzvah, um, you know, the theme was movies. You know, every table was a movie or actor, actress, and my table was Mel Brooks, and I actually had the honor of meeting him about a year and a half wow. ago. Um, and Mel Brooks sort of, you know, be, I guess because of that existential angst and after, you know, what we went through in World War II, there was a need to bring joy and laughter about Judaism. And that was like another response. And that has always historically been a response of Jews laughing, yeah. Jewish humor, you know, yeah. sardonic humor and everything. But certainly I agree with you that the time has come to go beyond, you know, either having anxiety mm -hmm. Or laughing, and it's time to, like you said, to really go to that place of meditation, which uh, I, I think, going on what you said, it's sort of like an acquired taste. You know, I remember the first time I tasted caviar, <laughs> it was gross, yes. right? And whiskey, yeah. and, I mean, you're not allowed to have whiskey. And beer as well. I, by the way, <laughs> I, I, monks don't have any of that stuff, but I was, before I was a monk, I was a human, <laughs> and I did taste beer and whiskey and all those things. And the That's first time I tasted it, it's... It's it's terrible. You're expecting soda pop, and it's a terrible stuff. But you keep a straight face because the other guys are looking, and you you drink it anyway. It's up here, <laughs> right? But you get a taste for it after a while, and that's meditation is often like that. You're expecting soda pop, and it turns out to be quite a grim experience <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. yeah, and but if you persist 
uh, you acquire a taste and you become a gourmet, a gourmand of these much more refined uh, emotional and mental states. And uh, so that's that's kind of a little advertisement for meditation. I'm, I'm saying just give it a little shot and put up with a little discomfort at first and you might find it's a, it's a door opening to uh, another way of being. Yeah. And I very much believe that uh, it's a doorway to both the synthesis the synthesis of a fulfilled present more conscious more loving and more mindful humanity and god's all loving and all embracing presence to really synthesize them through meditation and you know we've spoken that it's fascinating our belief which i know is shared by other religions as well is that we're waiting for the messiah mm -hmm. any moment now and uh He's long overdue, very late. I always say when I come late to something, I come late to an appointment, I say, oh, I'm just trying to be like the Mashiach, you know, like the Messiah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Christians are waiting for a second coming, Jews are waiting for the first time around, and Muslims are waiting for perfection of reality. And I know Buddhist tradition, you told me about that. Yes, we King. Have, I want to I make sure, because lots of people who are Buddhists don't know much about Buddhism. So I do want to say, there is a, said to be another Buddha in the, in the waiting room and not far off of Messiah, it, his name is Metea, huh. and he is the, the last Buddha of this world system. So there you find a lot of crisscrossing, crisscross, crisscrossing, yes. Yeah, Messiah. I mean, the Messiah is something that, again, like it's been such a cause of bloodshed throughout the generations, but now... I firmly believe that because of technology and because of the fact that East and West are coming together, God, reality, nibbana, silence, infinitude, transcendence, contemplation, these have to become the language of non-language that points to that inner silence that, that, that will unite all human beings now and prepare the world for the Messiah to come. And... We believe, like the prophet Isaiah says, that when the Messiah comes, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God like the water fills the ocean. Mm. And that essentially means that we believe when Messiah comes, you know, some people are scared. Like you say, there are a lot of Jews that don't know much about Judaism either, unfortunately. And there are some Jews that are very afraid of the Messiah. They see these like, they think it's some kind of Armageddon or some destruction of reality. But our belief in the Messiah is essentially that all of mankind will attain Nibbana, mm. will attain eternal supreme bliss in the world that we see, the same physical world that you see now, just we're going to see that it's all part of God's infinite being. And our preparation for that now, I believe very deeply, is to meditate together mm -hmm. and to contemplate together and to come to a silence where we could, where we could uh, love each other. I would like to talk about this commonality of the Messiah. And of course, in, in Christianity, the Messiah is a big deal. And in Judaism, where did Christianity get the idea? <laughs> From the Jews. And uh, I don't know what the Islamic view, uh, what role does this have? Um, they believe, I'm not sure. I'm not, uh, but they definitely believe in a, a future of bliss and utopia. And that's, yeah. that's something that... Uh, and, um, you, you know, I think it's important to bear in mind that the prophet Isaiah speaks about what the Messiah is, because a lot of people have, you know, like you mentioned in Buddhism, that there are a lot of Buddhists that aren't familiar 
with Buddhism, there are a lot of Jews that aren't that familiar with Judaism, unfortunately, and they think of the Messiah as something, some horrible Armageddon and a destruction of the world and California is going to fall off the map and all these horrible things. And in our belief, the Messiah is that the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water fills the ocean floor. And that essentially means that all of humanity will attain Nibbana. Mm -hmm. That essentially when, when God's infinite being will be revealed in the world, that is the ultimate unification of all humanity with God. Mm -hmm. And the way that we prepare for that, because it has to be in a way of unity. I mean, historically, there have been so many centuries of the Messiah and God being a cause for bloodshed and for killing and for divisiveness. And it's not, it's not God and the Messiah per se that has caused the bloodshed, but it's rather the language that people use. The, um, I believe I heard from you once, low-class literalisms. <laughs> yes. The low-class literalisms, that has been the cause of bloodshed. When people, yes. you know, we, we have a joke by Jews. Two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> or there's another one they say that a Jew was stuck on a desert island for 40 years and they finally rescued him and they see that he had built two synagogues <laughs> and asked him, what do you need two for? He says, one I pray and one I would never step foot into. <laughs> so even within Jews, you know, when you start speaking about theology and God, and I'm sure by Buddhists it's the same and Christians, it's, well, Christians, we know there have been wars throughout the history and by these Muslims there have been wars. And there have been wars of language. There haven't been wars of God. Yeah. And therefore, the Messiah, preparation for the Messiah that's about to come, is like the prophet Isaiah says, that the world will be filled with the knowledge of God, which means that awareness, that consciousness, that meditation brings, that silence that could unite us together. That's what the Messiah is. Yes, so it's, it's very interesting. that First of all, we need to be very careful and masterful with words. But words are still crude objects and only silence is superior we can't do without words but we must not get over invested in them yes and it's the over investment in uh, crude literalisms that produce brutal results mm -hmm. people go to war over a word yeah and, and you know in, in our tradition is a fascinating kabbalistic teaching um, you've seen a torah scroll mm -hmm. a torah scroll is parchment, mm -hmm. white parchment with black letters, with black ink. Mm -hmm. But the Kabbalah, te Kabbalah teaches that the white upon which the black letters are written is much higher than the black <laughs> letters itself. Because even the letters of the Torah are manifestations of God's infinity. Yes. But God's infinity is beyond any language. You know, it's, it's the, the, the letters of the Torah, the way that we see them now, are also just representative of how they are in God's infinity. And the Messiah is our becoming aware of that. And, and I believe that if we practice as human beings coming together more in silence, in that state of pre-faith, in that state of unity and love, that is going to bring the Messiah to the world. Yeah, so now let's talk a little bit about the Messiah and whether, you know, in Buddhism, there's this play back and forth between the kind of the, the outward universal experience and the inward transformational experience. For Buddha talks about where is the world amongst? The world is found within this body, one fathom in length. So it, it makes you realize there's, there's a microcosm and a macrocosm. There's the individual and the society. And so from a, the Jewish point of view, is the arrival of the Messiah a personal experience 
as well as can a, can a, an individual have an intuition, an intimation of the arrival of the Messiah? Well, not only can they, but in our tradition, we believe that when people, Jews and non-Jews, will have that Messiah consciousness, ah. that is going to bring the Messiah. Because, you know, uh, there's a, one of the main works of Hasidic thought is called Tanya. And in chapter 42, it's explained that we all have the Moses within us. We all have Moses, the ability to come to a meditative state and a consciousness of God, which in Hebrew is called Da'at, Das. That is the Moses we have within us. And what the Baal Shem Tov taught is that even deeper than the Moses is the Messiah that we have within us. And the more that we become conscious of that reality of the Messiah, which again, that the Messiah is not just a person. Of course, we believe there will be a king. Like in Buddhism, you believe that there's going to be a king. We believe in a king, that there's going to be a, 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 a person called the Messiah. But the reason and the way he's going to be able to redeem all of humanity is because we all have a spark of that inside of us. Mm -hmm. And when we come to that place of silence and that place of deep, deep connection to what goes beyond letters, to the white, to the parchment that's beyond the black letters, when we come to that silence that's more embracing than words, and when we come to that unity that's so much more important to God than the nitty-gritty sociological differences we have, that is Messiah consciousness. Hmm. And that's also something that's within all religions. I mean, that's in, in the, you know, the great Rumi and the Sufi mystics spoke about that a lot. And, and Shankara, of course, in the, in the Hindu religion and, you know, in Christianity, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven lies within and great mystics throughout the generations like Meister Eckhart, they all spoke about that Messiah consciousness. And we have to start you know, we have to humble ourselves and stop talking, like you said, talking so much with words and just come together more in silence. And that will, that will, that will unite us and bring about the Messiah. Yeah. I had a, uh, a meeting with uh, Father Thomas Keating, the oh, you... founder of Centering, uh, Prayer. Centering Prayer. And we, were, we shared a house uh, before a, a, a meeting, which we, we had with uh, a Sufi master, a uh, contemplative rabbi, uh, myself and... Thomas Keating and together in silence it was called and but the night before we spent the night at a house and we sat at the, the kitchen table and and the 84 year old six foot four Thomas Keating said to the young monk what is Christ consciousness <laughs> I wasn't too ready for this but I said I, I actually have spent a lot of time thinking about this <laughs> so and uh, I said, I explained to the reverend uh, that, you know, it's not really consciousness of Christ. It's the very consciousness of Christ within you and so forth. And he said, of course, but what is it? <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was already becoming... You thought you'd get crucified. I was crucified. already very heterodox, you know, like, I thought I already transgressed the boundaries. He says, of course that's right. the case. But what is it? You know, I said, oh, well, there I go. Now that's why we're in silences, because <laughs> you can't explain it. Right. Uh, so, but maybe we'll encounter it in silence. And so, yes, so we're seeing this, the, the, this really inability to, uh, to separate the, the personal experience. We must have an internal and personal experience of this.
in order for it to manifest in the society as well. We can't really separate these two things. That's what we actually believe that the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, he actually had an ascent of the soul and he writes this in a letter to his brother-in-law that he met the Messiah Mm -hmm. in the higher realm. Uh And he asked the Messiah, when are you going to come? And the Messiah responded, when your teachings will spread forward Ah. and all people will be able to make to unify reality with God like you. And that means that for the Messiah to come is through that coming together in silence and 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 mystic wholeness. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes is also from Meister Eckhart, that while theologians of the world may quarrel, mystics of all religions speak the same language. And that's because theology is all this thorny, difficult words that we've been talking about. And mystics know we could just come together and smile and be together in that silence. And I know from from the Jewish faith, and I've spoken to um, some Buddhists as well that were brought up in Catholic faith, faith, that for a lot of Jews and I'm sure a lot of Christians and I'm sure a lot of Muslims as well, Religion is important. I'm a religious Jew. I'm Orthodox. And and I think those that find religion to be a place of solace, and, and, and I highly recommend it. That's my job as a rabbi. But there have been so many Jews and so many Christians and so many Muslims that have been alienated from their perspective religion because the way God is presented with words, with the words from the Bible, without that mystical understanding that all the words of the Bible are not explaining what God is. They're just pointing to that infinite beyond. So they become alienated from that. And when we all become mystics and contemplatives and we all tap into that Messiah consciousness, that is the perfection of reality. Mm. It's not technology and it's not, you know, technology could just kill more people and destroy more people. And even mass media has been used and I'm sure will be used for so much craving and aversion Mm -hmm. and ignorance. But when we use technology and we use these different methods that that God has granted us now to be able to come together in silence and in in peace and in inner stillness and to come to that consciousness of the oneness, of the non-dualism of reality that Aldous Huxley wrote so beautifully about in the perennial philosophy, quoting Leibniz, of course. And that is the messianic revelation. And it's up to us to meditate and to tap in all of us, to tap into God that's within us. And the more that you could feel, like uh, Augustine said, closer to you than your own breath is God. Or as King David said, on every breath, and the sages explain that he's saying, in every breath I will praise you, God. If you could feel that breath of life in you, just like when God blew it into Adam, he's blowing it into us every breath. And the more we become conscious of that and we could sit together in that, mm-hmm. That is messianic consciousness. And notice that the preliminary to the awakening of the Buddha is breath meditation. It is, and his main uh, object of meditation, uh, which he, to this day, which I've practiced for the last 30, 40 years, is breath meditation. The breath, the breath, the breath. And I'll tell you something very interesting. (laughs) Just to show you what I was saying earlier, if we could sort of connect it back to the beginning, that how in Jewish sources, even though we have a mystical meditative tradition, but it's been primarily lost Mm -hmm. over the generations and everything we've been through. So, you know, a lot of people hear, oh, meditating on the breath, that's a Buddhist thing. It's not a Jewish thing. But there is a great mystic, Rabbi Abraham Abulafia, 
from, I think it was the 13th century, if I'm not mistaken, long time ago, hundreds of years ago, and he talks about breath meditation. So Jews had that also, uh-huh. we, but it's not something that was spoken about as much. And is it helpful to come across Buddhist sources in order to recover some of these things? Very much so. I, like I, I, I said, this yeah. is this is the way in Catholic, uh, Catholic tradition too. This is what Thomas Keating said to me is that up to the about 16th century, we we had it. We lost it in too much activity, huh. and we I had to recover it through Buddhism because they they didn't lose it, or some most of them have, or many of them haven't lost it. A, a great deal of Buddhism is is going to lose this as well, and as and we have to preserve this in the world. We have to keep recovering it and preserving it because this is a is obviously the age of activity, yes. and not the age of stillness. Unfortunately, and, and, and this is going. Our little planet is only can take so much activity. <laughs> the party is getting out of hand. The the the, the windows are being kicked out. Everyone's so drunk. Yes, everyone's drunk. The party is is yeah. So we need to wind this thing down. Yes, and uh, come back to a much more uh, sophisticated and civilized uh, experience of yes. existence. Well, it's been a a very interesting. A dialogue and we could go on yes we can for a week or two can <laughs> 24 hours a day but we will just give everybody a taste of uh, the rabbi and the ajan and by the way what does rabbi mean the same as ajan the same as ajan means teacher teacher just teacher <laughs> so That's we, all are we try to be in unity over that and I want to uh, shake your hand. Anu Modana. Thank you very much. A shalom. Thank you very much, Ajahn <laughs>